it's not about what I don't know. It's about what what can I do best for the patient, and something that's sometimes what what I can learn from, gain from a conversation with somebody else. Welcome to the Emergency NP and PA Workforce Podcast. Here we navigate the EM labor market, the role of the EM, NP, and PA, the relationship between the clinicians and facility, and all the financial issues that come with it. I am your humble host, Omar Nava. I'm an emergency medicine physician assistant who's been in the business for 20 years. I'm also the vice president of advanced practice provider services at Ivy Clinicians, and I'm very excited to bring you this podcast to all the emergency medicine clinicians out there. We know what you go through and we appreciate you. Today, I'm very happy to host our guest, Gabe Westheimer, emergency medicine nurse practitioner at San Francisco General Hospital. Gabe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. To all our listeners, could you give them a brief story of your journey on on what brought you to being an emergency medicine nurse practitioner and and a leader in, in the industry as well? Definitely. Well, I, I've been at the general now for the past 10 years. Um, it was a, a great transition from community medicine, uh, where I practiced three years before that as a, as a new nurse practitioner. You know, I came into the, the profession a little later than some. I enjoyed my 20s immensely as a, a, a ski bum and a hiker and in the outdoor industry quite a bit. And, and transitioned after ski patrolling professionally for many years uh, into a, a graduate program. I was one of, uh, one of many who have gone more of a direct entry route uh, from, from having a kind of a, a different career into, uh, into a work as a nurse practitioner. And so I, I didn't have uh, years and years of RN experience, bedside nursing, though I did find a way to, to gather those skills and work a little bit during my graduate program. I was also very fortunate to participate uh, in an inaugural uh, fellowship program in emergency medicine after my graduation. And I I trained uh, for a year in a a non-academic institution where I was able to to really hone my skills and and get a lot of really good foundation to go work at a few different community hospitals. I did quickly move into academics and, and work at, at San Francisco General fairly early in my career and have, have been there growing uh, now for the past decade. And it's just been a, a, a fantastic home. This is a, I think, a fascinating uh, history. And this is what I think is valuable to our listening audience. And, you know, our listening audience is not just emergency medicine, MPs and PAs, it's potential employers, other leaders, physicians possibly leaders, leaders within hospital systems. So your experience is pretty, there's a pretty wide spectrum of having worked in different levels, if I heard you correctly, at the community level initially, and then on to the general. And anybody knows what the general is like in, in, in San Francisco. You were part of an inaugural fellowship uh, program. Again, uh, something that not everybody gets. And finally, you settled into academics at the general. Again, not something that everybody gets to experience. So keeping in mind your wide variety of your experience, it's really covered a lot of different geography and emergency medicine. Let's talk about that in working in a level one trauma center. As some of you may know, listening uh, to this podcast, lots of EDs in the country. Well, specifically, there's over 5,000 EDs in this country. And it's my contention, Gay, that every ED is different. Yes, they share a lot of similarities, but a lot of differences as well. Their needs are different. 
their NPs and PA duty description and scopes of practice for them are different. Tell us how NPs and PAs in your department work as part of the treatment team. Like, for example, what, what kind of acuity do you, your NPs and PAs see? What kind of procedures do they admit and transfer their own patients? Great questions. It's, it's something that, in, certainly in my, in my department and, and my tenure at, at the General, has changed quite a bit. And I can expect that, I'm going to guess, throughout the country, our roles as, as NPs and PAs in the department has evolved and has changed during, during one's time at any certain institution. When I first, first began 10 years ago, they were just initiating a, a, a CDU, a clinical decision unit that was run by our group taking care of folks who may not, you know, would need, you know, less than a 23-hour admission. So we had that as a focus in addition to working in the core. We had uh, one of the zones that was heavily staffed uh, with uh, one to two NPs and a physician, uh, and we took care of about 18 beds there. That was in addition to a few other areas of the department where we would float through. As that CDU winded down and we started to do more core work, we also looked at some of the problems we were having and uh, with both patient flow and some lower level acuity patients who weren't getting seen at our separate urgent care. And so we, uh, we kind of migrated into working a little bit more with a kind of an upright fast track area in addition to some core work. And, and then about that time, we actually changed buildings. We were, we were in a, one of our older buildings that still had a lot of history and certainly is what, what I remember fondly as, as, a, as a home, but we, we were able to move into a new tower about seven years ago. That changed, again, what our kind of focus was and how we, we worked as a group. Currently, I think COVID has changed a lot. And so, you know, of how, we're, how we work and, and what we do. We still see core patients, though a little less these days, uh, as our group has been focused in on how to manage our waiting room and, and, and doing more more work kind of in the front of the hospital. We still get to do some core work on uh, days where, when our residents are in, in their conference. I am able to, to work in, in the resuscitation area and then we, we, we help the off-service residents and the attendings there with running codes, with running traumas, with doing more high acuity care. But it's definitely has over kind of the last two, three years during COVID as our volume of patients and as our, our kind of the numbers have changed and the acuity has changed, evolved or devolved. It's, it's, it's certainly been a change mainly due to the number of folks that our department is is housing as far as the, the already admitted patients. We have a 58-bed department and we'll oftentimes have over 40 of those patients be already admitted for multiple hours being managed by our inpatient teams. And so now we have those 40 people we'd like to be taking care of sitting in the waiting room and trying to, to manage those difficulties is, a, is a, certainly a new hurdle. Maybe this is a project for the future. Uh, I'd be happy to follow you as a leader, but maybe we need to develop a specialty to name hospitals a center of excellence for waiting room medicine. I think we need to develop a specialty for waiting room medicine. You develop that game and I'll follow you anywhere, buddy. And that could be a separate patch and a badge we could wear on our white coats and say, I am an expert at waiting room medicine. This is a specialty you don't want to learn if you don't have to. It is a skill that we have honed and working through that is 
as you said, not something you want to be good at, but something we all have to have to have to be good at. And because it, it is truly now the way that we greet our patients and how we start their workup and work within the restrictions of our hospital, our system. Certainly here in California, we have very heavily regulated nursing restrictions as far as what we can order, what we can do, what our nurses can manage uh, as far as ratios. Uh, and uh, kind of building that skill set is is not something that's taught anywhere. It's not a, a class you can take at a at essentials. There's no no really good format of of doing this well. And it was something we're certainly learning as we go and then becoming our own experts for sure. Gabe, I suspect you would agree, but please disagree with me if you do. In my experience, you could have some solid EMNPs and PAs, solid clinically and, and solid from a, a work culture point of view. But for whatever reason, they've made a decision and nothing wrong with it, or they don't possess whatever the special chromosome is to sustain day in and day out, month in and month out, year in and year out, practicing waiting room emergency medicine, which means those that do remain, that's a special group of people that can find out. I heard some key words from you. They were innovative. There wasn't a manual for this. People had to figure this out in real time on their own. And even once they figured it out, they had to find a way to go home to bed and come back and say, I'm going to do that again. And again, wouldn't you agree that not everybody can do that and sustain that? Absolutely. And I think that those of us who who do is it's not necessarily something that's sustainable for ever. It's not a, you know, we, you can certainly buckle down and, and really focus and try to work the problem. But I think, you know, the, the term burnout is, uh, is well overused in many ways, but is, is, is real as well. And if you put that task on a very small group and only let that group do that single task, that can be some long-term, very slow trauma that will have downstream ramifications. And one of the things I'm really trying to work on right now with my group is to have that be recognized that it may be the easy option to say, okay, all the NPs, all the PAs go up front and, and do some waiting room medicine. Um, but the, the ramifications downstream of that, I think, are, are immense and shouldn't be, shouldn't be looked at as, as the final, you know, the, the, the the solution for for this problem we have of boarding, of staffing, of of all the hospital issues that are being put on the shoulders of the folks in the waiting room. Gabe, I, I think you bring up a good point that I had not anticipated in our conversation, and, and it's the the point that you just made. I have now thirty five, thirty six years in, in, in running in, in the military, and I started off in the combat arms and became a combat medic, then became an LPM. And, and I pursued and earned my PA education on the civilian side, not in the Army. But in the past five years or so, the, the buzzword resiliency has been a big deal in the military. And it's, you know, how do you become resilient to stay in the fight, not leave, to stay in the fight and operate well? And I'm sure that there's a percentage of us, especially those old guys and gals that say, well, what's this resiliency? You just get up. You just got to do your job. You, you just have to do it. And maybe we underappreciated that a little bit, but I'll be honest, for everybody that's listening, I became much more attuned to this thought of resiliency and operating in adverse conditions when COVID happened. And throughout COVID and post-COVID, I became hyper-acute to what you just talked about, Gabe, 
that just because those of us who are left that can operate uh, this way in these conditions doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. It doesn't mean we'll continue to do so indefinitely. And the last point, the one that I really struck with me, what you just said, it doesn't mean that it's healthy and there won't be ramifications down the line. Regarding supervision at your shop, uh, Gabe, there's all kinds of different variations of skill, ability, and knowledge among EMNPs and NPAs, and, and, and which is fine. Uh, so different NPs and MPs are going to require different levels uh, of supervision, you know, r- real close on a case-by-case case or every other case basis or end of day, end of weekly. And on the other extreme, you got guys like Gabe, who maybe the only time he talks to supervising doc is, hey, you want to go get a cup of coffee? Or, hey, I got this one real sick dude or a gal. I know what I'm doing. Let me just bounce this off your ears. Just tell me if there's something that you hear that, that that's wrong. And then you have a lot of in-between. Talk to us a little bit about the kind of the general supervision, different levels that you see at your shop at the general. Well, I mean, I think one of the reasons why I have found a home in emergency medicine, and I think many of us do, is the fact that it is truly a multidisciplinary approach to patient care, and it's very dynamic. And whether we are bouncing cases off of talking cases with our physician colleagues, our, our NP and PA colleagues, or nursing colleagues, we are able to do so in a very fluid manner. And I think it's that level of uh, familiarity and family that we have with our, with our colleagues that really help with resiliency and help with kind of how comfortable you are in the environment. And so I am certainly of the, the mindset of I'm very open to sidebarring anyone who can better help me take care of the patient. And that's oftentimes my physician colleagues. That's oftentimes my, my NP colleagues. And it's, it's very, uh, very easy for me, especially later in my career, to not feel any sort of lack of confidence or that, that it looks poorly on me to have a conversation with a colleague um, about patient care, because it's not about what I don't know, it's about what, what can I do best for the patient. And, some, and that's sometimes what's, what I can learn and gain from a conversation with somebody else. And so the supervision aspect is fluid, for sure. It's, it's very easy now for me to ask for, for help whenever I'd like it, uh, because I have really no, no, no problem with my confidence in doing so. And I think that that's comes with maturity and knowledge to know how to have those conversations. So I'd like to pick up on that last comment that you made, which uh, I think anybody who's been practicing uh, emergency medicine for a while would totally agree with you. I was sitting here nodding my head, yes, up and down, totally agreeing with you that the older you get chronologically or older in your career, you just shed any thought of self-awareness of, well, I look stupid for asking this guy. Like, you, you just don't even care anymore. Like, at this point, you're just asking Hey, where, where did you put the coffee? Where'd you put the sugar? It's, you're just asking to know. And I think that all of us, when we started and all new grads or post new grads are at risk for having that, oh, I don't want to look like I'm stupid and I don't want to ask a question. So I, I may not. And there's something really comforting when, when you get older and your profession say, dude, I'm just going to ask you a, a question. <laughs> I mean, so that's very comforting. And, and I think you would agree that sometimes, uh, you know, we have our physician colleagues that'll say, hey, Gabe, what, what do you think about the sex trade, buddy? Or what, what do you think about this? Which is great. It's awesome. I'm really glad to hear you uh, say that uh, because I have the same thought. And I think a lot of people listening have the same thought. Let's take a break to tell you about our sponsor, Ivy Clinicians. 
Full disclosure, I am the Vice President of Advanced Practice Provider Services at Hyde. And I joined because I was frustrated with the emergency medicine job search. And I'm guessing you might be frustrated too. I also believe that EMNPs and PAs have and will continue to provide valuable contributions to the ED by expanding access to quality emergency medicine care to patients. I am very passionate that when the right EM, NP, and PA are matched with the right ED, then emergency physicians and EM, NPs, and PAs create a most powerful team best equipped to tackle the modern and future challenges of emergency medicine. So our team at Ivy created the Zillow of the Emergency Medicine Workforce, where you can find all 5,549 EDs, filter by your preferences, and connect with the right employers, all for free. Your data is secure, and you pick which employers can see your profile. Sign up now at ivyclinicians.io, and when you find the right job for you on Ivy, we will send you a bottle of champagne to celebrate. That's ivyclinicians.io. All right. Let's get back to the show. Earlier, when you were describing working at the general, you described, uh, you know, how leaders were evaluating the needs of patients and you described the need for a CDU and then zones and then floating and then working with with core and how COVID affected that. So it, it sounds like you had leaders putting some sober conscious thought into saying, hmm, Over here to the left, we have these needs. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to match up these particular folks with these needs. And then next month, if that changes, then we're going to move them over to the right. So it sounds like some sober thought has been put into place by leaders at the general of, let's be aware of what our needs are and let's be fluid. Let's move assets around wherever we need them, which I think is is a great use, uh, great employment of EMNPs and PAs. I think that's kind of what we bring to the fight is that we're very malleable. We're very adaptive. We can step up to the plate. We're kind of wherever you need us. Give us a safety net with, a, with good supervisory physician support. And there's really a, a lot we can do. Do you think that throughout the country that there's opportunity for more development in, in that area, specifically matching capability of NPs and PAs for the needs of hospitals? Do you think there's work to be done in that area? There's absolutely work, and I think it's you know, really well put. I, we we certainly do bring a, a lot of f- flexibility and uh, ability to be very dynamic to a department. We can certainly help be a really good tool in solving a lot of problems um, and be a part of that decision-making and, and, and be, be part of that leadership to identify where those problems are. I think that there's some maybe credit that is is – it's not always as fully thought as we'd like it to be. And I think that oftentimes change is reactionary, unfortunately. And I think that we can, you know, even in post, even after those changes have been initiated, be the steady thought of reevaluating those problems and reevaluating, was this deployment or was this, this focus the right thing globally, or was it more of a reaction to a problem? And we can provide that feedback. We can provide that leadership within our entire department of how that opera, how that works. Um, I certainly think that there is an underuse of our abilities overall. I think that you know it's, we talk a lot about working to the top of our scope or working to the, the most of our abilities. And in many many situations, I, I don't 
feel that we're always given that opportunity. I think that we are given, uh, you know, the, the solutions that we that we are kind of helping solve. I don't always reach the, the highest of intellectual fortitude, or don't always uh, give us the most satisfaction in what what we're doing. But they're certainly important to hospital flow and figuring out a way that you can both meet the requirements of your department, but also grow your group and and, and build a strong strong group of APPs, of, of NPs and PAs is, is important. I'd like to pick up on that last, I was actually blends in nicely to, to the next question. You talked about building a group and, and developing a group. You know, I, out of 20 years, I practiced in emergency medicine, 19 of those years, I was a leader in, in the department. And then I've been fortunate enough to have, uh, to be blessed with leadership experience in, in the military. So when I hear you talking, I, I hear a, a leader talking. We were both brand new grads at one point. You were a brand new grad. You were in the community uh, level emergency medicine. Then you were at, at the madness and the complexity of the general. You were an inaugural fellowship and, and you moved on to academics. Gabe, as you know, not every ED or every staffing group can furnish a candidate, a brand new grad, or maybe post new grad, or for that matter, Gabe, moderate experience MPMP. They can't furnish them all with an academic fellowship, with a non-academic fellowship. What does a responsible program look like from a general point of view? If I'm an ED in a rural area, maybe 30 beds, and I need EM, NPs, and PAs, I can't furnish them with an academic fellowship. I can't furnish them with a non-academic fellowship but I need folks. What does a responsible developmental program look like? You know, I think that, that we, we can look at the, an answer to that of what it looks like today and maybe what we'd like to look, see in, in 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and, and I do see those as different things. I think today um, you, you hit the nail on the head. We have to be responsible with how we, with the responsibility and with, with, with who we bring on to, and put in, in specific situations. Um, I, I personally don't, I, I don't have a, of experience uh, in, let's say, critical access medicine or understanding some of the smaller departments that have much less resources. Um, I remember when I was brought on to one of my first community gigs after my fellowship, I, I obviously still considered myself brand new. I still considered myself very much a novice. And I was, was given, you know, the, let's say, permission during those first few months uh, to continue to be a learner. And I, I really appreciated that. When we bring on newer folks within our group, even if they have a few years of experience, either in, in urgent care or maybe even in a, another emergency department, we still bring them all on in a kind of slow and stepwise way to make sure uh, that we build a foundation of the of, of trust and the ability to kind of ask questions and, and, and rely on the folks around you. It would be great in the future for us to have something similar to a, you know an ACGME fellowship, something that's more formalize something that is that everyone goes through so you know that whoever comes out of that type of education has a foundation has a similar foundation but we obviously don't have that now and so a lot of it is tailored to the individual the person's i would say their comfort in in their own self and their comfort in, in their medical knowledge and the skills that they possess or how quickly they can learn learn new skills so it is hard to to think of a formalized way to, to make make it work for everyone when we have such a unformal education up to that point. So you, you brought up a, a really good point that's kind of going to blend into our, our next uh, group of topics. 
I like what you said that we should make a distinction between now-ish and the future. Because the reality of it is that in the now, you know, there's you know, solid estimates. There's over 10,000 EMNPs and PAs combined working in emergency medicine right now. And right now, we still have people in the waiting room <laughs> that, that don't get to see a provider w- within a satisfactory amount of time. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the, the physician uh, issue. But right now, we have an emergency medicine physician shortage and shortages in the residencies. So for the now, less NP and PA involvement would seem the opposite of an answer. So I like that you made a distinction between a fix for now and the later. And I have no objections and I I support your vision about, hey, you know, in the later, there's some other certifications or some more graduated developmental formal things that we should look at if if emergency medicine has become complex and we're going to have a bigger hand in it, which is great. And as you know, we can do two things uh, at once. We can walk and chew gum. We can be developing something for the 10-year, but we could also be working on the now. So moving on to our our next category of topics, there's currently a a lot of obviously conflicting viewpoints regarding the use of EM, NPs, and PAs in their scopes of practice. I believe myself, by and large, that EM, NPs, and PAs are working side by side with docs all across America just fine. They're getting along just fine and they're doing well. They're operating as good teams. Sure, there's room for improvement among some EM, NP, and PA practices. Of course, there's some room for improvement. However, I think we aren't going anywhere. Our professions aren't going away. There are not enough EM physicians. That's not changing soon. I believe that when EM and NPs, PAs work well together with physicians, that patients win. They have an increased access to quality emergency medicine care. What do you make of this conflict, Gabe? Well, I do think that a lot of the the conflict is I'm not going to say is is over there's definitely a conflict but i do think that a lot of the conflict is based on facebook and the blogosphere and the loudest voices in the room and folks who who like to hear themselves talk and moan and groan but my experience and i'm going to guess similar to yours is that your colleagues the people you work with appreciate you. They they recognize that you are a, an added benefit to the team, that you bring high quality, great care to patients, that you are a needed part of, of your group. And that, that's, that is the way I feel personally. My colleagues who run a residency, who run, who, who are training the next batch of physicians and who thankfully this year have filled every spot in the residency, uh, which is, uh, as, as we know, a, a really, it is kind of scary. There's been, I think this year has more unfilled residency spots for our physician colleagues than every other year combined. It's, it's outstanding. And that is not because there are too many nurse practitioners or physicians, physician assistants out there. I do think that there is some animosity. I do not think that it is the majority of our colleagues who feel that way. And I think it is mostly the, the people who like to hear themselves talk. So for anybody listening, Gabe and I have never met, but we sound like brothers from another mother here because I agree with every word in how he said this. I agree with you, Gabe. I think this is a common thing of a smaller number, but they're the loudest voices. And as we know, social media has a way of, oh my gosh, just talk about the telephone game. 
to spreading something like wildfire. And I further agree with you that, you know, residencies are not being filled because of us. If anything, I would elevate the theory that I think these loud voices, the gloom and doom, have scared away uh, residents. <laughs> said EM medicine has become so scary. And folks said, well, if it's that scary, maybe, maybe I don't want, want to do it. But I totally agree. It's the smallest. Uh, as I said in my backup for the question, I believe that by and large, we're, we're getting along with our physician colleagues just fine. You can have room for improvement in, within EM and PMPA practice and still have a place in the emergency department and still let Gabe be super duper wonder NP and let Omar Nava, the novice PA say, dude, you're not ready for prime time yet, Omar. We're, we're just going to have you in the fast track for like the first year, two years, and we're going to develop you, follow Gabe a little bit, and, and then maybe we can bring you to the like. All those things can be true at the same time. I, I don't think that the world is so you know, black and white, there, there's an either or choice. Uh, I certainly uh, don't think that every supervising physician across America needs to see and greet and review every discharge of an EMNPPA before they're discharged. <laughs> I think that would slow down the gears of efficiency. If we think we're having waiting room problems now, <laughs> start putting tents up in the parking lot. Let's move on to this next uh, topic, emergency medicine, nurse practitioners, and PA leadership. When you consider the growth of NPs and PAs in emergency medicine over the past 10 to 20 years, EDs have increased shifts by us from one to three a day to up to four to six a day. So in, in some places, we are meeting hour per hour the staffing of EM, NPs, PAs, and docs, and in some cases, exceeding that. This is an impactful contribution to emergency medicine and to the ED that EM, NPs, and PAs make. I don't believe there's adequate EM, NP, PA representation within staffing groups, within EDs, and with hospitals. I'm not mad at anybody. I'm just saying, given the setup that I just gave of what an impact we're having, I don't think that our representation proportionately matches that. What are your thoughts, Gabe? I couldn't agree more. And I think that we're obviously at hopefully a tail end or a transition point from our, our last three years during COVID. I know that during COVID, I've had, I had many, many friends and, and I know groups in, in my area and, and across the country changed their staffing models, decreased a lot of uh, their NP and PA coverage. I know some groups who totally eliminated their APPs during some of the height of COVID when their patient volume was depleted, when we didn't see as many people. That was certainly our experience uh, within the Bay Area. Our volume dropped quite a bit. Thankfully, there was uh, no, no one lost their job within my group. Our, our group stayed, stayed strong and, and, awesome. and, 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 in fact, has kept filling uh, their open requisitions and op open jobs. But I do know other groups who didn't. And so I know that we are at a point where we have a, a rising patient volume and we're back to where we need to have a full, robust staff of of APPs, of NPs and PAs, along with physicians. I do think as far as leadership goes, there are a lot of a lot of opportunities. I think there's kind of, you know, you laid out three unique or, or different levels or, di or different places where we can see leadership and, and can see, see folks rise to, to a level. And, uh, you know, the first is our, our independent staffing groups, you know, our, our folks who are part of a physician, oftentimes a physician-run staffing group that independently staffs mostly community, but some some uh, more academic emergency departments. And I've seen those groups do a, a fairly good job bringing in 
few MPs or PAs, much like yourself, who have taken a leadership role within those those groups. And I, I see them being a little more dynamic. I see, I see those groups doing a better job recognizing the need to have APP leadership. I see within specific departments, maybe sometimes a little less. There, there's oftentimes an APP lead, an, an MP or PA who takes on a lot of the the voice of the group brings that voice to to leadership within within the, that specific department, but isn't a voice outside of the department per se. And I think many groups have that. That role is is a d- dynamic role and can be focused just on things like scheduling and and hiring, or or can be a much more uh, louder voice or a broader voice within the department. I think the third, and I, I'll say the most important role that I uh, I'd like to see grow, and I know that our the Department of Public Health in San Francisco is working on this, is to bring a, an APP voice into the C-suite. We have a CMO, we have a CNO, but having an actual chief APP officer, someone who oversees the well-being and the entirety of the system-wide group, I think is really important. And it's it's good to see that happening elsewhere. And I, I look forward to developing that within our, our department as well. So again, I, I got to give you props because you you saw my suggestion and you raised it by one beyond my scope. And I, I had not formulated that. And I feel kind of embarrassed because I've been doing this for a number of years. But I like your your theory about, hey, there's a CMO, there's a CNO, and there should be a chief APP, uh, you know, MPPA role in, in the CSU. That's, that's specificity. And, and, and I, I like that. That's very dynamic. And again, I want to emphasize when NPs and PAs have crossed over the 30% speed bump in number of hours, uh, staffing hours in the emergency department, and they're rapidly approaching 50% of all staffing hours, in some cases have already exceeding that. I don't see how that profession, how that line of effort does not have representation or a voice. I don't get it, but agree with, with everything you said. If you don't mind, I will uh, in the future attribute that thought to Gabe, but I'm going to steal your thunder about having a chief uh, APP in the C-suite makes makes so much sense. Let's move on to compensation. I think the best comp models are the ones that are truly transparent ones. And I, I understand. I've been doing this for a long time. That's easier said than done. There's some complexities and some challenges to achieving that. We know that cost of livings will vary with geographic regions. Pay will be different on the West Coast. Pay will be different on the Northwest versus the Southern West Coast. Pay will be different in middle, middle America and in the Eastern part. I feel that EM, NP, and PEA should be a product of experience, special procedure performance, patients per hour, RVUs per hour, and other citizenship-like attributes. Are you on time? Do you work with, with your colleagues? What's your patient complaint look like? Did you pick up any extra duties in the department or committee for the hospital? Things like that. I believe that when there's just a generic one-dimensional pay mode, how many patients per hour did you see? When, when it's really that uh, one-dimensional, that elementary, NPs and PAs can begin to develop frustration, resentment, and animosity. Because you can have two APPs working side by side, both good people. But maybe Omar likes to operate at a lower gear than Gabe does. Well, if Gabe is seeing more than me, and if he's seeing more complex patients, but he's doing more procedures, I want Gabe to get paid more than me because I want him to feel happy and non-resentful in, in his position. What are your thoughts about, you know, examining the compensation model? 
It's a complex one. I, I don't disagree with anything you just said. I think that there's certainly in, in situations in, in models that don't follow your, your suggestions, there is room for, for improvement and there is room, you know, that, that folks do build that frustration, that animosity. Um, it, it is absolutely there. I do think though, it's not quite realistic in many ways. My work, and I think my situation may be a little unique is I'm a city county employee. I work for the city of San Francisco. My compensation is extremely clear. It's, it is written, written in the bylaws. It's, it's, it's agreed upon in the union meetings. Uh, there is no, no room for any, any movement there. Uh, there's a 10 step compensation and that is purely on the number of years that you've put into the city. It's a very kind of old school approach to compensation. And so that's, that's what I know. And that's what I've known for, for a long time. And yeah, it can definitely be frustrating sometimes if you feel like you're putting more, more work in, you're seeing more, you're doing more. And the person who's been there five years longer than you, who may be doing less is getting paid more. That's unfortunate. I do think that especially uh, with, let's say the way my group is being used right now with a lot of waiting room medicine, that it doesn't do a good job calculating the impact that we do. If you just look at how many patients do you discharge? How many procedures do you do? All those things that I think make us good at what we do and are kind of bring joy to, to our work. If those are removed, you do need something that provides good compensation for the work that doesn't quite, isn't as calculable that you can't put a value to, or it's harder to put a value to. And so I think you definitely need the other, the flip side of your recommendation is to also recognize that if you are there seeing patients in the waiting room and you, let's say you saw 40, 50, 45 patients, but you discharged four of them and you did no procedures and you certainly didn't have any billable RVUs other than maybe a physical exam on each patient, that person also should get paid really well. You bring up a good, a good point and th that is this dimension of using traditional metrics to measure performance and contribution doesn't apply in all situations in our current model of emergency medicine, certainly not necessarily so to our, our new fellowship that you and I are going to develop of waiting room medicine, that there is an absolute value to running through that waiting room like a madman and identifying sick, no sick, hey, get this done, get that done. And at the end, your discharge patients may look like you said, may only look like what Gabe only discharged five. Like you have no idea what he did though. He impacted it and he caught STEMIs, strokes, other things. He initiated sepsis protocols without him. I mean, bad stuff would have happened to a lot of people. So that's a great point that traditional metrics don't necessarily mention all the dimensions of, of our contributions. And that's, that's certainly something to look at. Gabe, you've been practicing emergency medicine for a long time. You have a very colorful and fascinating history of how you got into the business, what you've been doing since you've been here. What haven't we covered that you say, Omar, hey, the, the listeners of this podcast, emergency medicine, NPs and PAs and uh, other docs and potential employers, they need to hear this. We may not solve it all, but they need to hear this. What's a thing out there that you, that you still think that needs some discussion? Well, I really... Really appreciate that, uh, that, that prompt. And I think that we can all, all do, you know, do a better job or do a, be better at, at elevating our profession. And I think you, you know, starting these kind of conversations and bringing voices into discuss is fantastic. I think what we can do is we can together elevate our profession. Um, I think that we can all, you know, look for our, our fellow 
NPs and PAs in our academics, in our CMEs, in our lectures, and really show that we want to hear from each other, that we value what we all bring to the table. And we will only be looked at as a great adjunct to emergency medicine, as, as, as a great member of, of the team of patient care, uh, when we can mutually respect each other and really raise each other up in, in all facets of our work. I, I think that we can we should do a better job about raising our voice together. I really appreciate that because I, I agree if there's a spectrum of voices and opinions on how to address the challenges of emergency medicine, but specifically talking about the workforce and, and where is the place of the physician, where's the place of the EMMP and, and, and PA, we do ourselves a disservice when we have these conversations in silos alone and people throw arrows from uh, an ocean of differences between them. That, that really just doesn't get us to where we need to be. I like how you put this. We work together. If we elevate each other as a team, that's better for everybody. As we conclude here, what book or movie would you like to recommend to our audience? It could have nothing to do with medicine or it could have something to do with medicine. Just something that's caught your fancy recently. Well, I just finished binging Last of Us, which was a, a fascinating, <laughs> horrible show that just made you both hate and love society. <laughs> what I really loved was the Chef's Table pizza series on Netflix. I love food. I, I love that that uh, that genre of, uh, of of TV, and it, it just loves love seeing people's relationships with food. So that was a fantastic addition. I'm de definitely enjoying that. Awesome! I'm putting that on my list. If uh, folks would like to reach you, how could they reach you? My my email address is gabriel.westheimer at ucsf.edu. That's the, probably the best way. I am on Twitter at NP in the ED, and people can reach out there as well, but email is probably the best. Folks, we've been listening to Gabe uh, Westheimer, emergency medicine nurse practitioner at San Francisco General Hospital. I want to thank you very much, Gabe, for joining us uh, today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I would like to thank our podcast producers, the great team at Earfluence, and finally, a big thanks to you, the clinician. For over 20 years, I worked with you. I learned from you. I've been inspired by you. I know the sacrifices that you and your families have made. I know that challenges that you faced. And more importantly, I know your value to the market. Thank you all for listening to the Emergency NPNPA Workforce Podcast. I am Omar Nava. We'll catch you at the next episode. And don't forget to subscribe now to this podcast on your favorite podcast app.